Alrighty, welcome back to yet another episode of In Defensive Liberation, the show educating about and working towards a true people's liberation, uh, and one day hopefully a proletarian revolution. Um, but until then, I am your host Josh, and welcome back to In Defensive Liberation. Uh, today we have a special guest with us, uh, Ramiro Sebastian Foynez, who is a Honduran communist and content creator based out in Los Angeles. Ramiro, how are we doing? How's it going, Josh? It's good to be back on and pleasure to be speaking with you about revolutionary socialism, communism, and me- and media in the 21st century. Yeah, it's always good to talk to you, Ramiro. You're such a good comrade, and uh, I'm glad to have you back on. Um, so, I mean, let's, let's not, you know, we can dive right into it if you'd like. Um, a lot has been going on, man, and, and a lot is still going on with the pandemic and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people's movements taking place and, uh, the global South and a lot's going on. So I wanted to ask, you know, what's, what's been on your mind, what's been on your heart, maybe what is it you wanted to, to talk about, what you learned about, maybe like just kind of what's been on your mind. So just to start off, before we get into maybe some of the U.S.-centered conversations, I just want to mention that I recently returned a few weeks ago from a delegation to Nicaragua, which is in Central America, to participate in a delegation in solidarity with the Sandinista government, the Sandinista revolution, against sanctions, against imperialism, and coercive measures designed to destabilize countries around the world that don't fall into the pockets of Wall Street, Washington, and London. And I was in Nicaragua from March 13th to March 24th. I was shooting a documentary that's coming out in the next few weeks. Hopefully I was working on it today, but today I kind of had a chance to realize how much more work I need to to put into it. But it's going to be coming out soon. Um, called Nicaragua Against Empire to talk about the impact of sanctions, how the Sandinista government and the revolution are fighting back against U.S. imperialism, and to highlight independence and sovereignty in that country. I had a chance to tour the country to stay with families in the mountainside in the Caribbean coast and also in the capital of Managua and see how they're building sovereignty and autonomy there. It was a really beautiful experience and a chance to see how imperialism and sanctions impact the country from the other side. Because in the U.S., in the first world, we hear the word sanctions and we don't really know what it means. It sounds like some sort of mechanism, some random political obscure term. But for people in the global south, especially countries that have been impacted by sanctions like Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, Zimbabwe, Yemen, other countries, they know what sanctions are and it affects them on a day-to-day basis, not being able to access food, medicine, not being able to trade with other countries. And so I was able to see that and see how the people of Nicaragua are building alternatives to capitalism despite sanctions. And so I just wanted to mention that starting off because I think it's very inspirational and something that for me personally re-energized my revolutionary commitment to anti-imperialism within the first world within the U.S. That's awesome, my friend, and, and what a beautiful experience that had to be. Um, I'm so, you know, I'm so happy for you that you were able to enjoy that and go go speak with people and go build. 
um, because that's amazing. And I know, you know, I know in speaking with you, I know how important that is to you. And I know how excited you are. And I know how excited I am about this documentary coming out. So, uh, yeah, uh, stay tuned for that. That's going to be awesome. I'm very excited to watch that. And I'm so glad you were able to have that experience because, you know, you bring up a really important point, which is that for the majority of us who live in the first world, who live in uh, what we call America, um, it it's difficult, even if you are, you know, a leftist, even if you are a communist, it's difficult to really understand these things in, in their true nature without, you know, personally seeing them in action, without personally experiencing them. Because, you know, going to, to these countries that are suffering under these sanctions, it's a reality that is undeniable, whereas a lot of us in, in you know, the West oftentimes want to try to, uh, you know, obscure the truth and obscure what it is that happens in these countries. We know it to be true in, in just about every country that it has taken up the mantle and, and fought against uh, imperialism. We see the way that they, uh, you know, twist the, the narrative and, oh, look at these look at the poverty that, you know, socialism and communism create, look at the destitution. And it, it isn't without, you know, for some folks, it, it isn't without truly seeing that they can, they can understand that, that world for, you know, what it is. Yeah, exactly. I think it's something that everyone who is in the U.S., in the European Union and Canada and the First World Nations should do should go to other countries to see what reality is for people working class people in those countries because it changes your frame of mind it changes your perspective on the international socialist revolution i think a lot of times within the us one of the problems that comes about is that people only view class struggle within the national context they only understand amazon versus workers here in the US or certain national specific struggles that are going on without linking it to struggles around the world. And I think people are stuck in this nation state mentality of only following and understanding what's going on within their respective borders. But we understand that capitalism and imperialism is a global system. There are 7 billion people on this planet and a revolution is going to take is going to affect all 7 billion people, whether good or bad, depending on what class you are. And it's something that is really important to internationalize struggle. I think the greatest communists that I can think of, like Che Guevara, Kim Il-sung, Mao, Lenin, Stalin, so many others have talked about the need for international proletarian revolution, not just proletarian revolution in the first world countries. And I think that for any young communists in the US or Canada or European Union who feel down about the lack of revolutionary potential in the first world or who feel disconnected from movements or parties, I think it's a great chance to go to countries like Nicaragua, go to countries like Cuba or Venezuela, or go to not even just socialist countries, but countries in the global south that are resisting empire, because there you will be inspired to see what and how people are struggling. It's really important to connect what's going on with you personally with debt, with homelessness, with with housing, with hunger, with lack of medical care, with struggles around the world. And that's the only way that any sort of socialism can come about is if it's international in nature. 
Yeah, and we've seen that in history. We've seen what socialist countries, uh, you know, have had to be up against as capitalism still holds the mantle in a lot of ways as the hegemonic control. It, it needs to be an internationally linked proletarian movement. Otherwise, you have, you know, say the folks in Cuba facing, you know, the entire world <laughs> minus the Soviet Union and, and some other, you know, comrades along the way but like again now we see what what it is that these countries have to suffer under without the uh you know protection that the soviet union was for a while to be able to give these countries the ability to get themselves off the ground because you know if we want to talk about seeing revolution or or seeing these problems from the side of these people Revolution in a lot of cases can throw these countries into complete, you know, disarray. And if there is not some form of of outside assistance, that can be, you know, a, a critical uh, choke point. And we as communists in the first world, we need to be doing everything that we can to support uh, these socialist countries in, in even non-socialist countries that are fighting imperialism uh, and, and fighting empire because without our assistance, you know, that's, that's genuine lives that are being lost. And like the more that we, the, I should say the less that we help out, the, the less that can be done to help those people. And as communists, we should want to be, you know, helping these people. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And I think another analogy that I compare it to is theater, right? When we think of revolution as a show, as a form of theater, and we understand that everyone in the world has a role to play in this broader play that we call revolution or socialism, but the roles are going to be different for some people than others. And I think in the U.S. and in the first world, people are very used to being the center of global attention. I mean, around the world, American media dominates culture. People around the world know who Cardi B is. People around the world know who Kobe Bryant is. People around the world know about Occupy Wall Street. They know about everything that has happened here. But if you ask the average person in the US about the labor struggle in India or the land struggle in Brazil or the land issues in South Africa, they're not gonna really know what's going on. And so I think it's created a situation where now globally, the revolution we know is gonna take place in the underdeveloped countries in the global South, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And it's not to say that people in the US, the European Union, Canada, Australia can't play a role. It's just that their role is different from what the role of the protagonist of the play is, which is the workers and farmers of the global South. They're the ones who are leading the struggle. I mean, just a few months ago in November of 2020, we saw the biggest labor strike in human history in India, organized by the Communist Party of India, Marxist. 250 million people on strike, organized by one of the biggest communist parties in the world. That was huge. That's a big deal, not only for communist history, but labor history in general. And it's something that materially already in the real world today, we see the most revolutionary organizing happening in these global South countries. And so 
that's not, you know, in the US and Europe and Canada, it's not going to take the same character. We're not going to be able to do the same things here because the material conditions are better. There's less incentive for revolution in the first world countries. Although the standard of living has declined, yes, overall, generally speaking, the conditions of poverty, unemployment, homelessness are not as bad as in the global south. And so the first world acts as a sort of core and the third world acts as a periphery. If we look at the microcosm of the Cuban revolution, we saw that the Cuban revolution encompassed both parts, the city and the countryside. There were people in Havana and in Santiago who were in the Communist Party, who were in the revolutionary movement that supported Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and others, who operated underground. They didn't have flags, they didn't have guns, they didn't run around sh shouting, you know, long live revolution and engaged in armed struggle. They left that for the people in the countryside who were engaging in those struggles against Batista soldiers. And so that's something that we can replicate on the broader international scale as the world has become more globalized, as there is a global city and a global countryside, the global city being the first world countries and the global countryside being the third world countries where raw materials, goods are imported from, stolen from. We can apply that same analogy where people in the first world countries, their role is not to run down the street with an AK-47 and start shooting and lead a prolonged people's war in the belly of the beast. Their role is to support the movements that already exist right now, today, in the global south and provide aid and solidarity and support and understanding that the role is different. Because I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from, where people who are new to communism, especially who are first attracted to Maoism, you know, they read about prolonged people's war, they read about united front and armed struggle, and they think they can apply it here where it's the conditions are totally different. And so I think that, um, I think that's a great analogy. And I think that it's something that we moving forward as communists in the US, it's, it's not that we shouldn't be doing anything. It's not do nothingism, but it's understanding that our role in this theater, this play that we call socialism is different. We're pulling the curtains, we're the supporting cast, we're the ones who are making sure the stage prep is ready, we're making sure the props are ready, the, everyone knows their lines, but the protagonists are those women in India who led that 250 million strong strike. The protagonists are the women and campesinos and workers in Latin America and the Caribbean who are protesting their governments, you know? So it's, I think it's just understanding your role in the global broader struggle and being okay with like, yeah, I'm not gonna be a protagonist. This is not all about me. This is about the people who are suffering the most, the wretched of the earth. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's very true. You say um, the, you know, we need to know our role. And, uh, you know, one way that we can show critical support for these countries that are, you know, really suffering during these times, especially, uh, you know, since the pandemic, um, with the state of the world being what it is, uh, many people in the countries like uh, South America, Asia, Africa are all um, still going to be incapable of receiving the vaccine like 
anytime soon for uh, COVID. And uh, it seems like they even, you know, even in the cases where they do get some, they don't really have enough doses to actually hand out to all those who need them. Um, so I wanted to talk about the this problem that we're seeing now, uh, which is which was introduced to me by the term by the name of uh, vaccine nationalism. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, but basically, like for those who don't know, um, the the major players in the in the world. So like, uh, basically, the if you want to know. You know, we're not the protagonist, but if you want to talk about the, the antagonist, the bad guy, right, the, the UN Security Council, uh, uh, the, those uh, five uh, permanent countries, those are usually the ones that are taking part in the bad shit. So uh, I think it's U.S., France, and I want to say England, uh, which have now attempted or completely succeeded in buying a genuine uh, like overall majority of the world stock of vaccine. Um, and, you know, talking about like centering things around uh, America and, and when we're talking about these problems and, and wanting to focus on those, you know, that might seem like a good thing to those of us in America who are like, yes, you know, my family and myself are going to get the vaccine. But, you know, it's it's not it's not always such a, a easy solution because time and time again, the most marginalized uh, communities suffer the most uh, during these times. So, you know, whenever we see, a, for instance, a, say an economic collapse or a pandemic, uh, we know as communists that what the, the eyes can see is not normally the whole story. So what is it that you would say the whole story here is? You know, why is it that marginalized communities keep being betrayed? not only by our government, but the United Nations and, and these international organizations that are supposed to uh, be humanitarian and, and uh, protecting these folks. How, what's, what is it that's, you know, going on with this right now, my friend? In terms of access to vaccines and the monopolization by the first world countries over access, I think a good analogy is a popular reference to movies that I'm sure everybody who's listening to this right now has seen this movie. I actually had this conversation with Comrade D-Level from Ewoks Unhinged. Shout out to him. Had a good conversation with him about vaccine nationalism. And one of the analogies I like to think of is the movie Titanic. I'm sure we've all seen that movie from the 90s, Leonardo DiCaprio. I forget the other actress's name. But there was a really interesting scene in the Titanic that continues to catch my attention. And it's when the ship is already hit by the iceberg, or rather the ship hits the iceberg and is already beginning to sink. And everyone is already making their plans to leave the ship, except for the poor people. You see in the top parts of the ship, the rich people are telling each other like, yo, this shit's about to go down. We need a backup plan, we need to get the fuck out of here, we need to do this, we need to do that. They're already on top of it and they're already securing their boats. They're already getting ready to go on the life rafts. They're gonna detach from the ship while the poor and working class people who I think in the film are portrayed by the Irish people in the bottom level are dancing, drinking, and not necessarily because that's their fault, but they're unaware they haven't been given the same information 
as the wealthy elites, British elites were given on the top of the ship. And as the ship is sinking and as people are realizing that everything is going down, the rich people already took ownership of the small amount of life rafts that were on the ship and already making their plans to leave. And there was a scene where the, there's one guy who's guarding the boats and he pulls out his gun and shoots in the air and threatens the people who, the poor people who tried to jump on the life rafts because there's only a finite and limited amount of boats. And we can use that analogy for anything that exists in capitalism that is of human use value, that is of necessity to humans for their survival. And I think vaccines are part of it. We also see that happening in the occupied state of Palestine that calls itself Israel, where the Israeli government is monopolizing vaccine access, not allowing Palestinians to get access to vaccines, A, because it hurts their profits for these private medical big pharma companies to share the vaccine, but B, because it also solves their problem of getting rid of the Palestinian population, which they view as poor, which they view as savage, which they view as a nuisance and on their land, even though they're settlers and occupiers on Palestinian land. And on the global scale, that's what's happening. We have people like Bill Gates who openly talk about overpopulation, the wealthy elites who talk about humans as a nuisance because we're remember the think of the context right we're in a high-tech low-pay late-stage capitalism where humans are appendages to technology and even marx talks about this in volume one of capital where the more efficient technology becomes under capitalism the less humans are needed and if in fact the more of a nuisance humans become because the work that technology and robots do is no, they no longer require humans. Maybe they just need one or two skilled people overseeing that. And so when there's a large reserve of labor and you have technology replacing human labor, humans become appendages, they become a nuisance and the wealthy don't want that. You know, same thing with insurance companies that have to pay for poor and working class people's medical expenses who have really bad situations. So overall, there's a in financial incentive for a lot of the big companies that run the world, the big pharmaceutical agencies, the big companies like Amazon to have less people because they already have the technology to continue getting the profits that they want. And so I think in terms of access to vaccines internationally, that's what we're seeing globally is where these first world countries want to monopolize access to vaccines so that they can charge whatever they want to the poorer countries, knowing that they're not able to develop their own pharmaceutical industries, knowing that they're not able to develop their own vaccines. And it also helps them leverage power against these countries when we're talking about sanctions, when we're talking about regime change and getting what they want, which is really fucked up when you think about it. You know, it's like someone's dying in the street and you have bandages and water and stuff in your house, you know, they're dying in front of your house and you have all the stuff that they need to survive. And you're like, okay, you're going to have to do, if I save your life now, you're going to have to do this, this and that for me later on. You know, it's some really dark shit if you think about it. And that's what's happening globally. And that's why it's so important for genuine socialists and communists to support China, to support Russia, even though they're not perfect, right? They're not, 
100% socialist in the way we would consider it, but they're developing objectively independent pharmaceutical companies, independent medical industries that aren't reliant on Pfizer or Moderna or Bayer or Johnson & Johnson that anyone can access. I mean, in Nicaragua, where I just visited, there have there's access to the Sputnik V vaccine produced by Russia, and they're able to get extremely low-cost access to that vaccine because of trade with Russia. And the same goes with Cuba and China. Part of the vaccine medication that Cuba was developing was in collaboration with the Chinese pharmaceutical industry that is state-run. And so those alternatives are very important in the long run because then the Western European and U.S. countries are no longer able to use that same leverage against the global south. Because if China and Russia weren't there to be like, hey, we got you, we have the versions of that vaccine, but for a lower cost that anyone can use, you know, if they weren't there to do that, these first world imperialist countries could charge whatever they want. They could become millionaires and billionaires from selling this. So it's something that just reveals the underlying crisis of capitalism, the need to get rid of the free market and profit-based incentive around the world. And it just shows how sinister and evil these first world countries are. And you really hit the nail on the head when you, you gave the example of, you know, someone dying in front of your street, you have the bandages and you don't want to bring it out because, you know, ultimately when we talk about these things in the abstract, it's like, you know, it's pretty shitty to hear and like, you you know, it's it's upsetting. But like when you think about these things concretely and what this means, like my my uh, my partner's family is from Brazil. If you look at the material conditions, what this pandemic is doing to Brazil that's a whole nother level of fucked up. Like you cannot, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you can't understand these things just talking about them. Like it, it's it's destroying entire countries, entire families. It, it's eradicating people off the face of the earth that capitalism is actively trying to eradicate and now has an excuse to do so. Um, and so like, it's genuinely disgusting. Like, there's no other way to put it. And you're right. We do need to be giving as much support as, you know, socialists and communists in the first world. That means, you know, uh, that can mean a million different things. But we need to be supporting these countries because if there are no alternatives, if there are no second options, um, what is it that the people can do to help themselves? You know, they, they're, they're trapped and that's that's not what our objective is so like it, it gets defeating after a while when you have the conversation of like why is it that we can't you know give the support that we need to be giving to these countries because you know it, ha having this conversation you'd think it would be such a one-to-one -one understanding like a logical conclusion that like as a socialist i need to you know fight for socialism by supporting these people but it's really just, it's an enigma um, why it is that this, well, it's actually not. It's very easy to understand with the, the, the bourgeois ideology that convinces people in America that, oh, you know, poor people are, are you know, lesser than or, or you know, not deserving. 
um, because we have this individualistic pull yourself up by your bootstraps idea here in America that, you know, hasn't made sense ever since it's been used. And it's really unfortunate because then, you know, people are dying and, and we need to recognize as folks who call ourselves communists and socialists in the first world that we are in a lot of cases, the uh, opportunity for, you know, help for some of these people, because until folks in these places like America, uh, Canada and elsewhere start standing up against this imperialist oppression, it's just the imperialist dominator versus the exploited masses. And, you know, even though we see time and time again, the exploited masses win, um, it, it, it is something that they need support in. So we need to be showing that support however it is that we can. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're inside of the military ranks or military base, so to speak. It's kind of like if you're in a struggle, if you're in a armed struggle or a conflict in a war and we're, we're sympathizers of the other army, but we're inside of the other army's base and we have the position of delivering intel, delivering resources, supplies, intelligence to the, uh, to the oppressed side, to the side that's being pummeled. For example, let's use the analogy of Vietnam. And let's say those of us as communists in, from the US are in Vietnam, but we're in a US military base in Southern Vietnam. And we're soldiers, right, in the in the U.S. Army, but we sympathize with the Viet Cong. We sympathize with the Vietnamese people. Instead of trying to pick up guns and start a revolution inside of that military base in the U.S. military base of Southern Vietnam, and trying and failing immediately, and trying to do an uprising with just a handful of people inside of that base. Why not use our position in that base to deliver intel, supplies, uh, technology, and fight the be- the beast from within its belly? That's, I think, a better struggle. And I think that it's a, a microcosm example of what can be done internationally, where people who are in the U.S. And, and the European Union and Canada, within the belly of the beast, we can fight against sanctions, we can repeal sanctions, like lifting sanctions from countries like Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua would do so much help to alleviate them, to be able to build socialism because those are restraints on their ability. And it's just ironic because a lot of these quote unquote Maoists, these ultra leftists, or I call them turbo leftists, they're just everything, nothing's good for them. A lot of them talk about, you know, that's not real socialism, that's not real socialism here and there, but it's like, okay, if we actually did our job as communists in the first world countries and help lift sanctions on these countries, they'll be able to do just that and build socialism because those restraints are lifted from them. They're no longer hindered by these financial strangleholds from Washington and Wall Street. And so I think that it's something that we can do. And it's not the sexiest thing, right? People want, people are obsessed with going out on the street and getting their picture with the megaphone or, you know, spray painting FTP or just, or holding up a gun. And it's like, okay, like we support that. And obviously that's part of it, but 
the mo- some of the most important work that we can do is some of the work that's unseen or that's undercover behind the scenes uh, within the first world countries. Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement. And uh, I, I wanted to skip over this um, this next question. I don't know if it necessarily meshes with our conversation unless you unless you you know read it and came up with an answer and you're feeling you want to you want to talk about that but um but i i wanted to talk here um yeah it because you literally just brought this up you know in the global south many countries which we might call practicing socialists have made their way through uh, you know, to that point in, in some parts by using the electoral process. And, and you know, one thing that is commonly waged against the, uh, the global south and, and countries that are trying to uh, build socialism is, you know, for example, in Venezuela or, or Bolivia, they might say, well, you know, that's not a revolution um, and we need a revolution. Um, and so I wanted to have like a small discussion about you know, why it is that these countries are different? Why is it that, you know, we here in America have it in our mind that we can look and say, that's not socialism, uh, while also calling ourselves Marxists and not using our dialectical materialist analysis to understand the different differing conditions here. Uh, so I wanted to ask, like, you know, even some Americans think that the electoral process could take uh, part as it has in the global South in America. So I wanted to have a little discussion. Why is it that the electoral process has been able to to work in this way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one thing that's important to mention is that even the founders of what we consider modern day communism, Marxism, Leninism, Marx and Lenin, both advocated for any and all tactics in building revolution. Elections can be a tactic. For example, in Lenin, he, in his essay, Two Tactics of Social Democracy, he talks about communists using elections as a platform for getting attention. It's not the end-all be-all, but it's important to recognize that where do average working class people's attention go during in political events, usually elections, right? And that's just a reality. Like most most people, not even just in the US, but around the world, when election time comes, they become political, right? In their country. And instead of communists having a purity spiral and being and being redder than thou and being like, oh, I'm not gonna do anything because those are elections and those are bourgeois and you know that's not gonna lead anywhere. Uh, instead of even though, yes, to a degree that's true, we shouldn't just stand back and do nothing. We should understand that that's where the masses are. The masses are following elections. And as communists, we need to be where the masses are. We can't detach ourselves from the masses. And so how do we use elections as a springboard, as a platform for A, bringing attention to socialism and B, getting to the process where we can begin to construct it and I think that's what any serious communist around the world, socialist, revolutionaries around the world understand that. You know, for example, in Bolivia with Evo Morales, when he was elected and came to power in 2006-2007 with the MAS party, Movimiento al Socialismo, movement toward socialism, 
that's one of the things he said openly. He's like, look, we want to build a socialist Bolivia. We understand that elections are not the end all be all, but we're going to use this as a base to build power. And that's exactly what they did. You know, for 13 years prior to the coup in 2019, unfortunately, they were removed for about a year. But it was very successful, and Bolivia accomplished many great things under a, social, a, a government that's in the process of building socialism. And I think that while on the one hand, there's, there's this one tendency of, of liberalism or revisionism where people only fetishize elections, they only, you know, they have their I voted sticker and they think that that's the end all be all. Um, and, and that's definitely not true. We understand that elections under a bourgeois capitalist system are nothing but just a, a changing of the guard. The same capitalist dictatorship remains in place. All systems are dictatorships of a certain class. And in this case, under capitalism, it is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And we are only electing new representatives of the bourgeoisie. However, with that being said, we also have to understand that the majority of people still believe that elections bring change. And we can't just be ultra left and say, oh, fuck that. Like, we're not going to do anything. We have to meet the people where they're at and present a socialist communist platform and move them in a direction of a dictatorship of the, the proletariat. And that's what we've seen in developing countries in Nicaragua as well with Daniel Ortega, with Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, with Evo Morales in Bolivia. The case of Cuba is a little different because obviously they came to power in an armed revolution. Uh, so did the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, but they eventually in 1990 uh, lost in an election and they regained power through an election. So what we know is that in the global south, people participate in the electoral process and the left has made significant gains through the electoral process. And here's the thing, people who want socialism, who want peace, they don't want violence. People in the first world, many leftist communists, unfortunately, especially the younger generation, they're so obsessed with violence. They're so upset obsessed with armed struggle and violence is a very horrible thing and and that's not to say i'm against armed struggle and violence if it's used in a defensive way like the black panther party for self-defense that's how it started it wasn't an offensive army it was a defensive army and people really don't understand just how horrible living in a civil war conflict is living in an armed struggle or revolution when I was recently in Nicaragua, I had a chance to speak with former Sandinista guerrilla fighters who are now in the process of leading agricultural reforms, building schools, building hospitals. But they were alive during the 70s and 80s when they were fighting against the Contras, who were drug runners, who were backed by the U.S., who were funneling cocaine and had machine guns. Those were not fun times at all. That was not pretty and that was not fun. It was not romantic. They lost families, they lost friends. And they, they told me themselves, they were like, look, those were very dark times. We had to do what we had to do. We had to pick up the gun to put down the gun, but we're much happier now with the electoral process and building socialism and peace. Because at the end of the day, the human body is, and the human being is the most sacred and valuable thing on this planet. And we don't want people to die. We don't want innocent people to die. And if a socialism can be won through the ballot box without people dying, then good. Unfortunately, we know that's not the case and that usually almost never happens. 
but we shouldn't be cheering on for violence. We shouldn't be cheering on for destruction because for the most poor and oppressed people, people even who grew up in the hood in the US, people who grew up in poverty, they experience violence on the everyday. It's the norm and they want less of it. They want stability, they want peace. And it's fine if people want to build a better world through socialism, through elections, that's totally cool and that's up to them because they experience hardships on the daily, you know, and we shouldn't be here from our mom's basements playing video games on fucking, you know, Twitch or whatever, and being like, oh, that's not a real socialist revolution because they don't have guns. And they're in, it's like, dude, you don't even know what living life in poverty and violence is like. So you wouldn't want that. It's kind of like being on an airplane that has turbulence and being in a poor, underdeveloped, exploited global South country is like living in perpetual turbulence. You're constantly shaking. You're, there's no steady foundation for building anything because there's constant chaos. You know, you want you want the plane to to be still. You don't want more turbulence. And these psychopaths who are like, oh my god, we need to amp it up. You know, violence. It's like no, like people want to land the plane safely. They want to be at peace you know and so that's what i tell people who just kind of write off elections it's like yes elections are not the end-all be-all yes they are uh, controlled by the bourgeoisie yes they are pro ultimately just going to lead to the continuation of capitalism especially in the imperialist countries but don't rule out the possibility of socialists using elections as an organizing platform for something bigger as we've seen in other countries around the world I think not for nothing, if we're Marxists, never should we ever say this is a uh, a road we should not take. Um, you know, obviously, as Marxists, we understand as materialists that in, in everything, there is an opportunity for uh, to learn. There is an opportunity to try to change things. And so we can't be selective um, in what it is that we're trying to do, because we're trying to build socialism. We're trying to build socialism while capitalism is staring over our shoulder. So we need to build socialism and we need to build socialism now. So if that means we have to try everything, then we have to try everything. But there are far too many people who think that everything means throw just about everything aside and pick up a gun. Um, right, um, exactly. And, and that's not, not for nothing, but if you wanna talk logistics, Let's, you know, let's let's real quick break it down here. Imagine that right now in America, you, me and our crew, you know, we go get our AKs and we go, all right, it's revolution time. Um, what what's going to happen to us? Yeah, we're going to die. We'll be out in like 30 seconds. And not for nothing, we'll probably be made fun of on Fox News the next day for like right. a week. So like you got to look at these things uh, realistically. And I know that that's a hard lens because, you know, uh, imagine, imagine anyone in these countries in the global South flipped that on its head, wanted to be an idealist at, at the times when they needed to pick up the gun and say, you know what? I feel like quite honestly, we really just need to focus on elections right now. Like, yeah. obviously that, that wouldn't have been the, the person who was leading the, the revolution because what we are as revolutionaries is we are aware of our material conditions and we are searching for a solution to those material conditions. We can't just ignore the material conditions that, that doesn't solve any problem. Um, but I, I wanted to say here real quick, um, 
you know, because we're kind of hitting on this, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump back a question. Um, we've discussed it before, and I've seen it on social media a lot from specific groups, but white leftists in America have always been kind of facing an issue uh, organizing, uh, but also, it, you know, they, they face global class struggle issues, like we were talking about, like, trying to understand some of these issues from the perspective of the oppressed, trying to understand these these uh, circumstances from a different lens. And in America, you know, a lot of white leftists at one point, if you want to call them that, they were more labor organizers, but they fought against the abolition of slavery. Uh, they fought against rights for women. They fought against protections for immigrants and indigenous people because at the end of the day, in a lot of cases, the whiteness took over and time and time again, white workers in this country have fell to chauvinism, uh, racism, sexism, and xenophobia. Um, and especially when we turn our attention to the global south, we see uh, white leftists, whether in America or not, shitting on people like Avo or Nicolas Maduro, because, you know, even as leftists, they still fall into the West's propaganda. And so what we're doing here with, you know, in defense of liberation and what you're doing with your, you know, your stuff is, uh, you know, we're attempting to combat that. And, and that's why we record and that's why we post. But I, I wanted to kind of talk about what is it in the American left's mind that, that really truly needs correcting and, and education before any true praxis can be done. And, and before you answer that, I want to also throw in here. Also, we see when it comes to discussions of policing, uh, especially now with the Derek Chauvin trial, we see folks slip into this, this you know, bourgeois ideology uh, of the prison industrial complex. Oh, just lock them up. Just lock them up. Yeah. And and I, I think that as Marxists, we have to really be, you know, on our toes a lot of times. So, again, let me ask the question. Um, what is it in the American left's mind that uh, really needs correcting and education before any true praxis can be done? That's a great uh, question. I think it's something that a lot of people think about. And I think that in order to answer that question, we have to really return to the fundamentals of Marxism, of dialectics, we understand that theory comes from practice, not the other way around. As materialists, we understand that the correct ideas do not fall from the sky, but rather they come from changes in material conditions. And I think a lot of the debates within the first world left center around people not having the right views. If they just had the right ideas in their head, then things would change. If they just read this one book, if they just listened to this one lecture or read the real true ultimate theory of this one person, and it doesn't work like that. The only way it's gonna change is if the material conditions change. If things in the US get to a point where it gets so bad that there's you know, that people are not able to feed themselves. People are being shot. Everybody is being shot down and affected. Everybody is being impacted in the same way. Everybody is being kicked out of their homes, being starved, 
or being sent to war, something that impacts everybody. I mean, I think COVID-19 was an example of that, a taste of that, for example, where the idea, the libertarian notion, this Ayn Randian idea of the individual, the rugged individual is the best that, that solves all problems. Private companies solve all problems. The less state, the better. Th these ideas were shattered by COVID-19 because what was shown is that you need collective action. You need, everyone needs to come together and solve a problem together because we're all in this together. We're all impacted by the system. Going back to the analogy of a plane, let's say you're on a plane with a lot of turbulence and you find out that the, not only is the plane on the process of crashing, but the pilot is dead. You know, and, and, there's, and you're, as a group of passengers, you have to figure out, okay, how the fuck are we going to land this plane? Who's going to drive the plane? What are we going to do? You can't just, as a libertarian, go to your own little corner and be like, oh, that's your problem. I'm going to solve, stay in my little corner here. You guys deal with that. Fuck that. You know, the, individ <laughs> the individual is going to solve it. It's like, no, you're on this plane too. And as long as you're on this plane, if you don't solve this problem, you're going to be fucked too. And so it has to get to that point where crisis has to get so bad to the point where everybody is affected. And I think in this case, you know, in the U.S., for example, COVID-19 got so bad that it impacted everyone, regardless of color, regardless of race, regardless. Obviously, some communities got hit harder than others. But even for the right wing libertarian types, it impacted a lot of their businesses, their money, what they care about. So everyone acknowledged that this was a problem. Granted, everyone had their own solution. Everyone had their own ideas as to what we should do. But there has to be a recognition of one problem that brings everybody out. And in the U.S., that hasn't happened yet. You know, I mean, if when I've gone to other countries, for example, I've been to Haiti and I was covering some of the protests going on there. Things got so bad in Haiti that nobody was inside nobody was indoors because there was no electricity nobody had jobs to go to so every like everyone was literally had no other option but to hit the streets and protest and it has to get to that point in the u.s in order for there to be some sort of change in the shift of how people view things and so that's my thing that's what i reiterate to a lot of first world leftists who think it's just a matter of coming arriving to the right conclusion or idea or theory or you know if we just gave everyone a copy of this book or or this lecture it doesn't work like that you if know everyone just read my newspaper <laughs> right everyone just read my my blog or my newsletter then everyone would be automatically hey, revolutionary blogs. i write a fucking blog <laughs> yeah yeah no no offense to blogs I, I write one too but it's all good but yeah it's like you know it's one of those things where it's like you know, once the once once the conditions demand a revolutionary theory to get them out, people will turn to it. You know, if we're in a situation right where you know Amazon's one company ruling the whole country, where infrastructure is collapsing, where people are dying of hunger, where there's no electricity, where there's just complete chaos, and if we go to the masses and are like, look, we have this ideology that will bring order, that will bring prosperity, that will bring peace and equality for everyone, people are going to start listening until they recognize that problem, you know. But 
as we know in the US, because there's a, a more abundance of resources because of imperialism, because there's more distractions, people are too busy watching uh, you know, mainstream media and pop culture. As long as those things exist, as long as people are slightly fed, slightly taken care of, that urgency is not going to be there. And so the only way people are going to turn to revolutionary theory is by revolutionary changes in material conditions. That that was a great that was a great way to answer that question, my friend. You 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 know you gave me the answer I wanted I wanted you to give me, um, and I knew you would. Um, so I want to combine these last few questions into uh, kind of like one kind of summation and, and also ask you another on top of it. So, you know, summarizing these last three questions here, we, we kind of hit on, you know, we're in the belly of the beast here in America. And the best thing that we can be doing, especially for countries that are uh, practicing socialism, trying to build alternatives to capitalism, is to give them the critical support that they need um in many cases that can look like you know rank and file that can look like uh physical that can look like you know money donations stuff like that that can look like medicine food whatever um but also i wanted to you know use that as an intro to the question and ask um with this critical support, you know, presenting this this uh, support within the belly of the beast that these countries need, um, is there is there any ways in which that we can learn from, you know, because history is a, a, a fantastic tool. Is there any ways in which that we can look at some of the uh, socialist parties and organizations in the global south and just, you know, like, for example, in India right now? And look at, you know, compare those to America and see not only what is it that we're failing at, but what is it that these countries have failed at and what, you know, maybe problems can we try to start organizing around right now to, to kind of get ahead of the ball. And with all of that in mind, I wanted to ask you this question, you know, would then you feel, given, you know, your last, what we talked about, um, would you then feel it is more uh, crucial in many cases to dedicate our time towards, you know, committing critical support for these uh, revolutionary uh, groups waging class struggle in the global south? Or uh, do you feel that we can do that properly while also trying to, like I said, get ahead of the ball here? in the the belly of the beast and try to organize folks who right now are suffering in that way that you describe with that that urgency you know do you feel it is possible with american you know uh, uh material conditions in mind do you feel that it is possible that if we were to dedicate our efforts to it that this would be something that was possible or do you do you feel that you know it, it would need to get to a point for everyone for that to kind of take shape and take hold? I think that no matter what, there's always organizing work to be done in the U.S. I think that there are definitely sectors of U.S. society that are oppressed: Black, Brown, Indigenous, poor people, LGBTQ people, trans people, people who are on the margins of society because of capitalism and imperialism who are seen as not valuable, who are seen as not 
worthy or desirable because of the homophobic, transphobic, racist class of society that we live in. And I think that with that in mind, I think one of the really complicated parts about organizing communities in the U.S. is that there's so many NGOs. I mean, the U.S. has more NGOs than any other country on earth that are dedicated exclusively toward that is toward capturing any potential revolutionary activity of marginalized groups and redirecting them back to the Democratic Party. And unfortunately, that's something that a lot of leftist groups have to contend with. You know, if you ask somebody who's a person of color or, or LGBTQ, hey, do you want to earn 50 or 60,000 a year at this NGO and help get the Democrats elected? And you can feel like you're uplifting your your people or your class, or do you want to join this small, irrelevant communist group, make no money and, you know, and, and not have anything in the material? So I think that, first of all, within the organizing of oppressed communities in the first world, in the U.S. especially, I think there has to be some sort of incentive created to bring people in order to to have jobs for example like i don't have a problem with paying people for having positions in an organization like i think that's something that in the immediate people want like if you're going to talk to the immigrant community for example in in the us right like some of the most oppressed people i know in the us are undocumented immigrants who work three jobs you know can't pay could barely pay rent they share a bed with like three other people and yet they're doing work for the churches they were doing work for the evangelicals, for the Catholics, because those institutions understand that when you pay people, when you give people material wealth, at least a modicum of it in the real world, then they're going to support your cause. But if you're just giving them pamphlets and empty slogans, then they're not going to really fuck with you. Mm. So I think there has to be some sort of professionalization of communist organizing in the U.S. where you can have communist organizations paying the most poor and oppressed people who have no other option um, and, and including them in revolutionary organizing. Um, and I also think that what's also important is for joint unity with other oppressed groups around the world for delegations. I think it's so important for people to be able to leave the U.S. and the first world countries, travel to other countries and meet with other organizers and activists to see what sort of activities are going on over there. Because in a lot of the other countries, that's how it operates too. A lot of people, for example, when I went to Bangladesh, the Socialist Party of Bangladesh that I met with, they had paid organizers whose full-time job was working for the, for the Communist Party. And they were organizing street vendors, rickshaw drivers, and they were very efficient at that. You know, So I think it's like learning from what groups in the US are successful at organizing some of the most oppressed groups. Like if you go to the hood, like I'm, I'm born and raised in New York, right? And if I woke up any given morning in New York on the street corners, early in the morning, 6, 7 a.m., selling the, you know, the newspapers or selling the magazines, it was these Seventh-day Adventists or Catholic or evangelical people. And it was all Im undocumented immigrants selling them, right? And it's like, okay, how are they able to organize that community better than fucking communists, you know? <laughs> Even though we have the ideology that is in their favor, that is in solidarity with them, that supports them, that it is a working class ideology, yet they're able to win them over better than communists, you know? So we have to really like, not only just study other communists, but study other 
groups in general in real life today that are doing a better job at organizing. It's the same with these multi-level marketing schemes. One of the big problems, especially with the Latino community in the US, the undocumented community, is that you have people, all these companies like Herbalife and Nutribullet and all this shit, Primerica, recruiting hard. Primerica. Primerica, they're like, they're like, do you want to change your life forever? Are you ready to transform your, and it's like, we should be as communists, like we should be, and they're out organizing us. You you got what I'm saying? Because then the people they get are like some of the poorest, most oppressed people. So why the fuck do these people, these companies have more of an advantage than communists in organizing our class, you know? So I think it's just a matter of being open to like, being open to studying not just what other communists are doing, but what other groups are doing in general. And that's my critique of the left, unfortunately, is like so many people are so dogmatic in their ways. They're like, oh, like we only have to study communism. They only want to be within communist circles. Like, no, we should be studying and learning what everyone is doing, not even just in terms of organizing, but in terms of like even media. Like the right wing is winning the media war right now. There's so many Ben Shapiro's and fucking you know, Candace Owen, all of these right wingers who are dominating independent media right now because they just create better content. And this is being real, you know, and why don't instead of instead of being like, oh, like we shouldn't watch them at all, like as if we're like Puritans, we should be studying what they're doing and applying it for our class and for our ideology. You there, my friend? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, you you cut out. I uh, my girlfriend's mom is on her phone right now, so I think that's eating up the Wi-Fi. Oh, okay. Um, but, but yes, I I caught ninety five percent of that, and I wanted to to um, I complete a lot of cases. You know, we were talking earlier. I should say you were talking earlier about like that that urgency that urgency isn't felt by by most folks who are in these spheres trying to organize trying trying to build in in some way or another you know you can't necessarily say that their their urgency is the same as these folks in in bangladesh these folks in the global south like it's a it's a whole different world so like i just feel that you know as as someone who lives in america has only ever lived in america and and because of that, you know, unfortunately, oftentimes more than not thinks in the Americanized way, thinks about American, you know, struggle. Um, I always am, am wondering, you know, what is it that can be done here while, while trying to take care to, you know, give the support and, and, and the solidarity and work alongside with those revolutionaries who are waging class struggle in the global south and elsewhere you know what is it that can be done by organizations here to 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 help those folks who are oppressed who are struggling because you know like you mentioned our our black brown and indigenous uh comrades here in america do suffer in some awful ways and and they too need that that critical support but i also know that you know, I just not too long ago read a People's History of the United States, and something that that solidified in my mind is it. You know, first and foremost, and I, I've said it before on the show, and I'll say it again: if if you're a white person 
in America who reads theory and think that you're going to be leading the revolution. Like you need to take a step back. <laughs> Have a fucking um, seat. Yeah, Literally. Yeah. yeah um, we, you know, not just because, oh, you're a white dude, sit the fuck down, shut up. But like, right. let's talk about what is it that a white person, you know, could have done in the last 250 years, 500 years, if you want to talk about it for real, that that they haven't done. And so, you know, they've had their opportunity. They want to they want to lead the revolution. Well, you know, go down to your street corner and lead a revolutionary change in in feeding the people in your community. Like you can do that. But like, if you think you're going to take up arms as a class struggle against oppression in the world, like that, that's not the case. Um, so, you know, it's always a conversation that you want to you want to think about, you know, what is it with our material conditions? What is the reality? Because, you know, there's a lot of organizing that is getting done in this country, especially now with um, uh, these awful murders that keep happening uh, and, and by the police. Um, there's, you know, good work that's being done. And it's just, you know, it's it's facing the reality that because of what America is and kind of its historical development, it's not, we can't take like, you know, state and revolution and just go, all right, we're going to do this in America. Like, uh, there is so many complications, so much uh, to be to be said about why that can't be possible. Um, but I think that in a lot of cases, then as you know, Americans, then we sit around and we might say, all right, so what do we do? And so that's why I asked that question, because, you know, I am someone who genuinely does not know what to do. Like I'm sitting here in central New York uh, <laughs> in the center of reactionary fucking this city reactionary, this town reactionary, this, you know, country. And, and I, I'm, you know, wanting to organize and I'm wanting to do what I can, but like, I don't know what that is, you know? And I, I always right. just want to wonder, you know, is there shit that we can be doing or should we truly really just be doubling down and dedicating ourselves to, you know, not only just helping and aiding and giving critical support to these revolutionaries in the global south. But I feel like by doing that, we also gain the tools and, and the, the knowledge and the incentive and the urgency in some ways to begin forming those types of organizations here in America. Because ultimately, we can't just do nothing in America and we can't just do nothing to help the global south. Like, not only is there climate crisis, not only is there the pandemic, not only is there capitalism that's destroying the world, but like there are people who are actively waging class struggle who need our help. So like in any way that we can, we have to do something. But, you know, I know for myself personally, and I'm sure other people feel the same way. That's a hard question to ask, like, you know, what is it that we can do? Um, so before, uh, you know, I, I always love having you on, um, and I want to thank you again for, for coming on comrade. Um, I appreciate your wise words and your, you know, your solid input at every time we talk. Um, so before I let you go, I wanted to catch in on that wisdom once more going in on this conversation, you know, as we know, the, the American government has absolutely less than no interest in helping 
the masses in America. And as we've talked about, like there are folks here in America who need help and there are folks in the global South who need help. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, you know, maybe what, what's like some small actions? What are some ways in which we can begin going out and, and, and trying to help um, not only in our own communities, but help organizations that are trying to help uh, revolutionary struggles being waged across the world? Um, do you have any advice for those of us who want to, you know, who want to be a part of this this struggle, my friend? Yeah, I think that's a question that is very important. And I think not enough people really dwell on that and contemplate that question. I think it connects to going back to our earlier discussion about the different roles that people have in a revolution. There's a distinction between a revolutionary subject and a revolutionary object. What do I mean by that? A revolutionary subject are the subjects of revolution, the people who global socialist revolution is being carried out by the protagonist, right? And this is the global South working class from Asia, Africa, Latin America, that within the 20th and 21st centuries, objectively in history, we have seen have led the biggest revolutionary movements around the world if we're talking about the soviet union china cuba angola all of the latin american countries all of the south asian countries and also working class and oppressed communities within the global north the panthers the young lords the brown berets the unemployment councils the cpusa in the 30s so we understand that Globally, there are revolutionary subjects, the people who are the ones carrying out the revolutions, and then there are revolutionary objects, people who can serve as instruments in the process of revolution. And that doesn't mean that you're less important. That doesn't mean that you're any less valuable or that you're not playing a role in revolution. It's just that, again, your role is different. Your role is to help facilitate revolution through either financing global South movements, resisting change, or organizing against sanctions, organizing anti-war demonstrations in the imperialist countries. And I think that that's something that if you want to really understand that, it's just knowing your place within the global socialist revolution that, yeah, maybe maybe a, a, a rickshaw driver who makes 50 cents a day driving a rickshaw in India, maybe he should hold the mantle and be the protagonist of socialism than a $60,000 a year construction worker in the US who has two cars and, you know, okay, granted, maybe he has less hours and, and is paying more taxes, but he has a better financial position within global capitalism and imperialism. Because again, our analysis takes in, into consideration all 7 billion people on the planet, not just the 300 million in the US, you know? So we, we kind of have to zoom out a bit. It's kind of like a camera lens. We have to zoom out of the national context and understand things in the global context. And even though we make, you know, 30 or four, like I make 40,000 a year, like I'll be honest with, with everybody who's listening to this right now. So even though within the US context, I'm not necessarily balling, I'm just getting by, like I have debt, I'm, paying it off but i'm just barely surviving compared to most people in the world i'm better off i'm making enough money to survive i'm eating i ate i ate food today i have a bed to sleep on that's not the case for most people around the world and i humble myself with with that understanding and i say okay 
I'm not going to be the one to pick up an AK. I'm not going to be the one to lead a people's, prolong people's war in the street and fight the police. That's not going to work out. You know, so how do I humble myself and be like, look, but what I can do is these extra 10, 20, $30 a month I have, that'll go a long way in another country where people are actually carrying out revolutionary struggle, where people are dying, where people need medicine. And that is of tremendous help. So that's my advice to people in the US and the global north who are communists who sympathize, who want to learn is yes, organize the mutual aid stuff locally. Yes, participate in the protests against police violence, participate in, you know, we, should, we shouldn't be so ultra left to the point where we're just denying everybody's health and well-being in the US. But just keep in mind that even just donating a few dollars a month to people in the global south to just find a group in the global south you know in an, any other country and just start linking up with them start sending them money you know start you know helping translating stuff for them you know that's something for example like if you speak another language that's tremendous help like if you if there's comrades in i don't know let's say india right like if there's comrades in india and you know somebody who speaks hindi and you can work out with them a way to translate stuff from Hindi to English to build solidarity with their movement. That's a huge help. You know, so just understanding that like your role is not going to be the sexiest. It's not going to be Instagrammable. It's not going to be for social media. It's, it's going to be very behind the scenes and a secondary role, but it's still important, you know, and I think that that's something that people have to consider. Uh, even for myself, you know, like that's something that I like when I first got into communism, I was like all into the LARPing, like like a lot of people do, like they play dress up, they play, you know, they wear all the like the fatigues and shit. And it's like, OK, like you have to get past that stage, grow up and understand your role within the revolution. <laughs> it's kind of like the Cuban revolution. I don't know if you've seen that movie about Che Guevara, but there was a scene where this is historically true where you know Che Guevara is a doctor right from Argentina and during the guerrilla movement in Cuba you know there was a, a a part of the struggle where a lot of the combatant the guerrillas were very injured and sick and they they got hit hard by Batista's troops and Che Guevara wanted to go to continue being on the front lines at this point he had already commanded a, one of the fronts and was already leading the the weapons the the armed attacks against Batista Batista's soldiers and Fidel had to pull him aside and be like, look, we need you in the medical office. We need you uh, wrapping wounds and, and measuring medicine and, and doing some of that stuff because that's where your talents and skills are. You know? and, and at first he was kind of put off by it. He was, he was against it, but then he understood that when you're in a revolution, you have to act like a soldier. You have to have that same revolutionary discipline and know that if your skill set, like for example, you and I right now, our skill set is media, right? We both do podcasts, we both are good at designing and communications. Imagine if we can use those skills for people in the global south to help them produce their stuff, you know, where they don't have the access to technology that we have. You know, so it's just kind of humbling yourself as a soldier, having that revolutionary discipline to be like, put me where I'm needed even if it's fucking peeling potatoes like i don't give a fuck at least i'm doing something to help the cause you know at least you know you're feeding people right like right. And, and and that's what we want to be doing we want to be we want to be helping you know i always 
it's I start the show with saying, you know, this is a show that's educating about and working toward the true people's liberation and hopefully one day a proletarian revolution. Well, you think there's not gonna be someone who's gonna need to peel the potatoes that whole time? Like right. somebody's got you know, you had in, in all these national liberation struggles, I like to go on YouTube and watch some of the interviews that the BBC does with some of the, you know, like the El Salvador, um uh the Let's see, I'm trying to think of some, you know, obviously the, the Cuba one, that's where the world met Fidel Castro. Um, and so I like to watch those and listen to the, the gorillas give their, um, you know, their perspective. And it really shows you the humanity of what building socialism is. It's, it's humans coming together and saying, like, listen, if we don't do this now, like, we're going to die. Hey, right. Um, and so, like, that's that's what we need to be doing. We have to be making that the even though it, it isn't the physical reality for most of us, we need to make that the mental reality for us because it is the physical reality for the people who we want to support and we want to help. So um, I wanted to ask you, you know, before you go, thank you so much again, Ramiro, for coming on. Uh, shout out to you for always, you know, being down to record. Uh, but I wanted to ask you before you go, um, is there any projects that you're working on? Anything that you'd like to plug, let the people know about? um go ahead and do that up yeah definitely so as i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast i'm working on a documentary right now about my recent trip to nicaragua about the delegation in solidarity with the sandinista revolution that documentary is called nicaragua against empire and i will be posting it on my youtube channel just look for me on youtube ramiro sebastian funes i know my name is very uh fobby and immigrant <laughs> i got that Od Latino immigrant name, but it's all good. I, I love my name. But you could, if you look up, if you look up on YouTube, just type in Ramiro R A M I R O. Um, I'm one of the few people on there with that name, so you can just find me right, right there, and uh, I'll be posting it there soon. Thank you for having me. Of course, comrade, and we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. So anybody who wants to find that, hopefully, when I post this, you'll be able to find that in the show notes. Um, anything to say before we sign off, my friend? Nothing much, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate talking to you as always. And I hope everybody who's listening to this has a great week. And remember what I said about just not, you know, understanding your place within the movement and, and just continuing to fight, never losing hope, never losing inspiration, and just knowing wh where your talents are best suited. Yeah, that, that's very important. Um, thanks again, Ramiro, for coming on. Much love and solidarity to you. Uh, hope to talk again soon, comrade. Um, I'm just going to hit the stop recording because I want to ask you a few questions before I let you go. Oh, cool. No doubt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Bet.